So now we're on uh, the, oh, uh, is there another copy? Can someone bring one over here, please? Frederick disappeared? Okay. Thank you, Lionel, appreciate it. All right, this is the third of four parts uh, on the book of Esther. So just a quick uh, history lesson uh, summarized using some commentaries as well as uh, uh, the Bible just to help it to be a little bit more succinct. The kingdom of Judah was conquered around 586 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon captured the city of Jerusalem and seized its king Jehoiakim. He appointed in it a king of his liking, Zedekiah. He took heavy booty from it and sent it all to Babylon. And according to 2 Kings chapter 24, Nebuchadnezzar also exiled uh, the king, his family, and the scripture says, and all the princes and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths, none remained except the poorest sort of people of the land. The exile formally ended when the Persian conqueror of Babylon, Cyrus, gave the Jews permission to return to Palestine. Historians agree that uh, the returning Jews left Babylon at various times. So it just wasn't one trip back. They were a number of trips back. Not all the Jewish exiles returned to their homeland when given the opportunity. Some had put down roots during the half century of Babylonian captivity. And when the more tolerant Persian regime takes command, many of these Jews decided to stay. Suddenly, the Jews in Persia face a grave crisis. Their success had attracted much jealousy um, from a powerful man, especially named Haman, who is uh, leading the conspiracy to kill every Jew in the land. The book of Esther is one of only two books in the Bible named for women. The other is the book of? All right, very good. In the story of Esther, you'll meet, or for those of you who have been engaged along this journey with us the last couple of Sunday evenings, you have met a beautiful young queen who risked her life to serve God and to save her people. Esther lived in ancient Persia around 100 years after uh, the Babylonian captivity. When Esther's parents died, the orphan child was adopted and raised by her older cousin Mordecai. One day, I'm just recapping the story for you. One day, the king of the Persian Empire, Xerxes I, threw a lavish party, remember? Even couches of gold, we said, mm, beautiful, hard to sit on, right? Uh, and on the final day of the festivities, he called for his queen, Vashti, eager to flaunt her beauty to his guests, but the queen refused to appear before Xerxes, and filled with anger, he deposed Queen Vashti and forever removed her from his presence. To find a new queen, Xerxes hosted a royal beauty pageant, and Esther was chosen for the throne. Her cousin Mordecai, a minor official, uh, became a minor official in the Persian government of Susa. Soon thereafter, Mordecai uncovered a plot to assassinate the king. He told Esther about the conspiracy. She reported it to Xerxes, giving credit to Mordecai. The plot was thwarted, and Mordecai's act of kindness was uh, preserved in the chronicles of the king. At this time, the highest 
the king's highest official was a wicked man named Haman. He hated the Jews, especially Mordecai, who had refused to bow down to him. And Haman devised a scheme to have every Jew in Persia killed. The king agreed to his plan of annihilation of the Jews on a very specific day. Meanwhile, Mordecai learned of a plot and shared it with Esther, learned of this plot and he, sh and he shared it with Esther with these very famous words. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther urged all the Jews to fast and pray for deliverance. Now that is where we left off last Sunday. Tragically, the underlying plot of the book of Esther has become an old and familiar one for the Jews. Throughout history, the Roman campaigns, the medieval Jew hunts, the Roman pogroms, Hitler's final solution, they have faced constant threat of extermination. And you may be thinking, well, yes, I'm aware of that, but what does that have to do with me? And here is what this has to do with you. When you feel attacked, know that you have victory in Christ. And here's the reality. You know, sometimes in life we feel that we're being attacked on all fronts because of our faith. But we must remember that Christ, by his spirit, gives us the victory. Especially in this day and time that we live in, oftentimes we no longer have that Christian voice in our community. Uh, if there's any Christian perspective put forward on a board or in government, is often quickly shut down. So there may be times we might be feeling like we're under attack, but we know that we have the victory in Christ. You may sometimes feel threatened, discriminated against, misjudged, and unfairly characterized, but once again, we must remember that we are not on this journey on our own, but Christ is with us. We will face persecution because of Christ, but with that said, we know for a fact that Christ promises his presence. In Matthew 28:20, 20, before Jesus' ascension, he said, and surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And throughout scripture, we hear time and time again, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And then from the Psalms, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And from Isaiah, so do not fear, for I am with you, the Lord says. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. And those are just a few passages that are meant to encourage us and fortify us and help us to persevere through trial and tribulation and to stay faithful to Christ, faithful to God. So if for some reason you are going through some type of hardship right now, if you are in distress over some situation in your life, if you feel like you are surrounded on all sides and you can't see a way out, if you're wondering 
how you're going to survive, how you're going to overcome, how you're going to make it through the very next day or perhaps even the very next hour. Hear these words from the Apostle Paul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the challenge from all of these wonderful verses is just to claim the promises and rest in Christ. Allow the Holy Spirit to help you and to give you peace. Trust God and move forward no matter what it is that you are going through. Claim the promises. They're there for us. God is faithful. And then rest in Christ. The Jews were utterly devastated when they were taken captives into Babylon. And yet God provided leaders such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah to guide the people during this very terrible time. The people had ended up in, in their predicament because of their rebellion and their disobedience against God. However, God did not forsake them. God was faithful to be with them. And then when the time was right, as well as when the people's hearts brought them to that point of repentance, God softened the heart of King Cyrus. And with the help of some of those leaders mentioned, a number of the Jews were able to return. But those who stayed also experienced the faithfulness of God. Even in exile, the people trusted God and they moved forward with their lives. After all, 70 years is a long time to be away from your homeland. How many of you have been away from your homeland? Mine is a 40-something, okay? <laughs> it's a long time. You, you, uh, I don't know about you, but you, you are still from that place, but you don't really identify overly as much because we are now Canadians, right? And so these people who had been captives and been captives for over 70 years now began to experience different freedoms, right? And, and they, they were building their lives and, and they married and, and they put down roots and some of them rose to places of, of prominence or had businesses or they were thriving. And, and some of these people were like Esther and Mordecai. So they went on with their lives. And we are challenged to do the same thing. We are to claim the promises of God that he's always with us, that his grace is sufficient for us, and that God can work things together for good to those who love him. If we believe and claim these promises, then we can rest in Christ and then we can move on with our lives. We don't have to let hardship and difficulties cripple us, right? However, what are we to do when things appear dire. Mordecai had discovered Haman's plan to exterminate the Jews in Esther chapter 3, verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. What was his reaction in Esther 4, 1? When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. He was grieved. He was in great distress. 
and he showed it. When we receive bad news, we react, is that not so? Often we react with tears or mourning or anger. Perhaps some people like to yell, some moan. We react in different ways. And sometimes you go into your bedroom and, and, and you grieve by yourself. And other times you will go to your friend's place and you will share your concerns and you'll cry together. In the Old Testament, when people grieved, mourned, or was in distress, they often show, showed it by tearing their clothes and putting on sackcloth and ashes. Tearing one's clothing and wearing sackcloth and ashes were universal signs of intense grief in the ancient Near East. Sackcloth, which was made of goat and camel hair, was probably worn because it was coarse and black. And so this is what Mordecai did. He didn't go very far. He went to the king's gate. He went to a place that was familiar to him, and he went to a place that was in his normal daily routine. You will recall that he held some sort of a position, whether it was an official or a judge, but that position was held at the king's gate. That is where Mordecai went to work. That is where he went to be near Esther. And so from this I see it is totally okay to be distressed and to grieve when you're going through a hard time. You don't need to put on, you know, a mask. You don't need to hide it. It's okay. Too many people, uh, especially Christians, have no problem hearing about other people's problems and other people's griefs. And I will pray for you and let me hug you and let me do something for you. But then when we go through it, I don't want anybody to know. You know, I, you know, and, and I, I'm, I don't want to go to church today because then people are going to ask me about my problems. And I think, what's the matter with this picture? Right? We are to be there for one another, and it's okay to grieve. You don't necessarily have to tell everybody in the congregation the nitty-gritty details of what you're going through. But certainly that's why we're here as a church family, to support and to love one another. So we need to be able to say, I'm hurting. I am grieving. Pray for me. Or can we just go out for coffee and talk about nothing, just so I have your presence there as I, I go through it? You see, the result is if we don't share with each other, if we don't allow our brothers and sisters to come alongside of us, what we end up doing is we end up wrapping ourselves in this grief like a blanket, right? And then we don't let anybody in. We don't receive any help from our church family. And we end up feeling all alone and like nobody understands and God doesn't care. But with that said, that it's okay to express your grief, it is not okay to stay locked into that grief. Don't hibernate. Don't isolate yourself. Don't shut people out. Don't stop talking. Don't just dwell on your grief or the hardship or whatever, day in and day out, uh, whatever it might be. Rather, let's do like Mordecai. Go to that place that you're most comfortable with. Resume your normal activities as much as possible and seek out and accept the comfort and the help of others. You know, certainly everyone grieves differently. And, and the time frame for someone to come to terms with their loss and with their grief and to be healed, it's very different. It's very individual. But we must not lock ourselves into that grief, into that isolation, uh, perhaps doubting uh, God and turning away from God or simply feeling sad all the time. The way we can deal with it is go about our routine, but as we go about our routine, um, bring people along with us 
and share with them and allow them to be a part of the comfort that we need in those moments, right? So what are we to do, certainly, when you're, you're dealing with that grief? But first, before I answer that, Esther appears to not have heard about the edict. How is that possible? Well, Esther was living in this wonderful bubble in the palace, and she was unaware of what was going on in the outside world, just outside her gate. She did, however, hear that Mordecai was in great distress, and she, he, she heard what he was doing. He was walking around in his sackcloth with ashes all over him. And so, of course, he's her cousin. He raised her. And so when she heard that, she too became very concerned. And she sent word out to Mordecai, basically, what's going on? Tell me what is happening. Why are you so distressed? And Mordecai then told the attendant what was going on. And he even sent Esther a copy of the edict to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Mordecai was calling Esther to do something, and that something would be to break protocol and approach the king without him requesting her presence and then to plead for the Jews. Esther now, she's not sure what to do. So she sends another message to Mordecai in, in Esther 4. It says, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days has passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. I read it at the beginning. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. So Esther appears distressed herself. And she's wanting to help, but she's also afraid for her life. And she seems to be caught between a rock and a hard place. It may not be a life and death situation for us when we need to act on something. But it could very well mean the loss of a job. It could mean uh, the breaking of a relationship. It could mean persecution. It could mean verbal abuse or verbal assault or any number of things. What do we do? when there is a wrong that needs to be righted and we feel powerless to do it. We remember whose we are, that we are God's children, and that we are where we are for a reason. When Esther sent word to Mordecai that in essence she was afraid to go before the king because he hadn't summoned her and therefore she, she'd be risking her life, Mordecai sent back an answer that can become and has become a battle cry or an anthem for the, every Christian and for every believer in God in Esther 4.14. And who knows, but you have come to royal position for such a time as this. But let's back up just a little bit. This is actually what Mordecai said starting in verse 13. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. In other words, he's saying, 
Esther, don't think that because you're the queen that you are going to be exempt from this persecution and all that's happening to the Jews. Mordecai was warning her that her position would not protect her. Same for us Christians. Just because we are Christians does not mean that we will be exempt from the hardships and trials of life. It's not if, but when those difficulties come. We are to deal with them head on. But sometimes we may need someone to help us deal with our fears and to stir us to action just like Mordecai did for Esther. Mordecai's response put pressure on Esther for he reminded her that she risked death whether or not she approached the king. And from one commentary, here are three lines to his argument. One, Esther herself will not be exempt from the destruction under the edict. Two, he revealed his own conviction that God will not permit the extinction of his people. If Esther fails, God is going to find another way of saving the Jews since God's purposes cannot be thwarted by the failure of one individual to respond positively to his leading. And three, the outcome of her decision is so far-reaching that without exaggeration, she is now at the very moment when her life's purpose is at stake. Why was Mordecai so sure uh, that Esther would die if she remained silent? Mordecai was warning Esther of the consequences of disassociating herself from her people and by inference from God. If Esther hoped to avoid death by pretending not to be a Jew, she would also miss out on the deliverance of the Jews, miss out being used by God. I look at that and I say this is a warning to us today. Disassociating ourselves from Christ will not save us or make life easier. We shouldn't think that if we find ourselves in a difficult situation that because we disassociate ourselves from other Christians or from the church or if we announce Christ in order to avoid hardship or persecution and even death, that we would be spared. We may be temporarily spared, but ultimately not. And you know what the worst part is? The worst part would be that when we renounce Christ, we move away from his saving relationship, we jeopardize our eternal life with him, as well as we miss out on the wonderful opportunity of being part of the miracle that he is about to perform. And that is something we have to be careful for. Just because it's hard, just because they are risk, doesn't mean we should say, I don't want to have any part of it. Or I don't know, like Peter, I don't know him, you know, and, and miss out on the blessing of, of serving the Lord even when it is hard. If we want to be used by God to change our world or simply to change our community or to change our family, we have to take risks. Sometimes it means when you're shaking in your boots at work but you really feel prompted to go and say something to somebody, you have to go and do it. Sometimes maybe the Lord is prompting you to do uh, something uh, through this church or in your community. It may require some sort of risk where you feel there's going to be pushback or, or people might criticize you or put you down or call you a fanatic or any number of things. But the only way we can make a difference is, is to take risks. Esther decided she would take the risk. She held on to her faith. She accepted Mordecai's warning and caution and she decided to do something. So back to the question, 
What are we to do when we find ourselves in a predicament or a crisis? According to Esther 4, 13 to 17, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out Esther's instructions. So the answer to the question is, when we find ourselves in a predicament or a crisis, we hold that slide. Oh, <laughs> what are we going to do? Exactly. Now the slide can come up. We pray and we fast. It was so easy. And Pastor Lisa is very quick off the button. She does a wonderful job, doesn't she? Thank you, Pastor Lisa. Especially when I'm just telling it as a story and I'm not telling it at points. Sometimes it's, it's very hard for the person on the PowerPoint to keep up. So I really appreciate it. Anyway, the answer is we fast and we pray and we fast. So my question then is, is how important is prayer and fasting to you? I do know that the first Saturday of every month, I think it's 9 o'clock is the start time, the morning time, it is set aside for prayer and fasting here at Rosewood Church. Do you participate? I hope so. I know in, in just about every church, this is, the weak, this is our weakness. We don't pray and we don't fast. You have an opportunity. Yes, certainly you can do it individually, but I tell you there's power in corporately praying. When we pray together, things happen, right? Things happen not only for your church body, but things happen in your life. Things happen in your family. Things happen in our community. Things happen in our world. But we need to come together. So that, that is why prayer and fasting is so important. Why do we pray and fast? Well, although the connection between prayer and fasting is not specifically explained in Scripture, a common thread connecting the two seems to run through all the instances of prayer and fasting recorded in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it appears that prayer, um, fasting with prayer had to do with this sense of need and dependence and or abject helplessness in the fact of actual or anticipated calamity. Prayer and fasting are combined in the Old Testament in times of mourning, repentance, and of a deep spiritual need. There are instances of prayer and fasting in the New Testament, but they are not connected with repentance or confession. Rather, in the New Testament, they seem to be connected as an act of service and an act of worship. So if you keep all of that in mind, you don't have to spend prayer and time fasting simply because you are repenting or because you are in deep spiritual need. Absolutely do that if that's where you are. But also look at it as an act of service and, and an act of worship. Now, I know some people cannot fast food or whatever, but in this day and age, there's plenty we can fast, starting with social media. You know, my phone is attached to my hip. You know, my, phone, my kids' phones are attached to their hips too, right? I know that. But why does it take them a day to respond to me? I just, I'm just wondering. <laughs> Depends on the question I ask. If I ask a certain question, boom, I have an answer. If I ask another question, mm, they'll wait maybe tomorrow. Oh, yeah, Mom, here's the answer, right? So maybe we could fast uh, social media. Maybe we could fast television. Maybe we could fast something else. But find something. The whole idea in the giving up is not to whip yourself and, oh, poor me. The whole idea when we set aside this t time for prayer and fasting is to really focus, is to really concentrate uh, when we come into the presence of God. It's to have this very focused time with him. 
And so I encourage all of us, and I need to work on it myself, is to choose to do that um, more frequently as well, right? Then when we do that, when calamity, challenges, trials, or hardship come our way, let it be that we turn to God first in prayer and fasting as we seek his divine help and intervention. Prayer and fasting should not be a burden or a duty, but rather a celebration of God's goodness and mercy to his children. And when we find ourselves in a situation, now, here's where Esther found herself. And if we ever find ourselves in this situation, we are to do this. When we find ourselves in a situation where we have to choose life or death, self-preservation or God-honoring action, choose to be courageous and choose God-honoring action. I know in our comfortable world right now, we don't see how we could ever find ourselves doing this, but we have brothers and sisters around the world who daily have to choose. They choose life in Christ, but what they're choosing is death here because they refuse to renounce Christ, right? They refuse to hold on to self-preservation. Rather, they, they live lives that's honoring God despite the consequences. They choose to be courageous. But here's the thing. All God wants of us is to make the choice. And when we make the choice, I firmly believe that all we have to do is step out in faith. We choose to honor him. We choose to be courageous. And then his Holy Spirit comes alongside us. And then he enables us to go the whole way. He just wants us to make that initial choice. And I always say, how sad would it be that we uh, renounce Christ or we dishonor God in some way for a few extra years of life here? This life is a blip on eternity. So for a few extra years here and then eternity separated from God, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. But neither is making the decision. It's hard. It's difficult. We are human you know, when I think of some of the torture Christians go through, I get a pinprick and I'm like in agony. You know, but brothers and sisters are going through a tremendous persecution, but they're standing firm. Pray for them, uphold them, but also make a decision. When you go through some crisis because of your faith, choose to be courageous. If somebody's making fun of you at work, if somebody's calling you a fanatic, don't retaliate, don't lash out, don't start to lecture them. Just love them and forgive them and just stand firm in your faith, right? We want to choose God-honoring action. Es Esther's ultimate compliance with Mordecai's demand is considered a moral victory. It involves recognition that she is inescapably involved in a conflict between right and wrong in which she must take one side or another. Taking the right side specifically standing up for the protection and vindication of God's people will involve ultimate personal risk. She has realized that she is in a spiritual conflict and is arming herself as only a child of God can. When Esther utters the solemn words, if I perish, I perish, we need not read them as one commentary says, as the fatalism of one who has no hope, but rather as the determination which sees that faith permits only one course of action. And that is honoring God, right? And if we perish, we perish, and that's okay because where do we go after here? We know, 
right? We are certain that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And so Esther risked her life by coming before the king. Her courageous act gives us a model to follow in approaching difficult or dangerous tasks. From the NIV Study Bible Commentary, it says, like Esther, we can, one, calculate the cost. Esther realized her life was at stake. She knew what the cost was going to be. Two, set priorities. She believed that the safety of the Jewish race was more important than her life. Three, prepare. She gathered support and she fasted. And four, determine a course of action and move ahead boldly. She didn't think too long about it, allowing the interlude to lessen her commitment to what she had to do. So that leads us to the question, do you have to face a hostile audience, confront a friend on a delicate subject, or talk to your family about changes to be made? Rather than dreading the difficult situations or putting them off, uh, take action with confidence by following Esther's inspiring example. Do those four things, right? So as you go into your week, remember that where you are on your life's journey, where you are in the particular family, where you are in your particular job, where you are in your season of life, whether it's good health or ill health, whether you're going through challenges or not, whether you're having a season of happiness and contentment, uh, whatever and wherever you are today, know that God has a plan and a purpose for you right now, right where you are. So hold fast to your faith, be courageous, seek his face, and then put your faith into action and live in full obedience to the Lord, making decisions every day to honor him. With all of that said, the threat of annihilation is still hanging over Esther, Mordecai, and all of the Jews. How is God going to save them? What happens when Esther goes before the king? What brilliant plan does God give to Esther? Next week, our last session, you will get all the answers. See you then. Lord bless you. Okay.